merchandising, marketing, technology, all working together to deliver a brand experience that wins. And that's when you can really see a brand shine. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive, Amparity, and Element. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 86, and today's guest is Andrea Moore. Andrea is the CDO at Nest New York. She teaches as an adjunct professor at FIT and has been a part of the digital commerce space for much of her career. She got started in digital in the late 90s with J. Jill, and until that business was sold to Talbots. She moved to New York and Company, a fast fashion women's apparel brand that at the time had no digital commerce. She has served in a number of interim digital roles and has done a lot of consulting as well. I think that you'll enjoy our conversation. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Branstetter of the Wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Andrea Moore, who is the Chief Digital Officer at Nest New York. Andrea has extensive experience in fashion retail and consumer brands. She's focused on conceptualizing, launching, and growing online and omni-channel businesses proficiently and profitably. She also has the experience in strategy, online and offline marketing, sales planning and forecasting, web replatform and redesign, project management, talent and team building, operations and production for digital businesses. She's a busy person. She's also an adjunct professor at FIT and also has a number of advisory roles. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. It's so nice to see you and to be here. Well, thank you for doing this. I, I know this is a busy time of the year. We're recording uh, early part of November. Uh, everybody in retail is getting ready for holiday, and I'm certain that you are one of those people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I sure am. So, Andrea, you know, we start these shows uh, oftentimes trying to get kind of the first story uh, that my guests um, have in their life. Um, something, and it's it's amazing uh, how many of these shows that I've done when I talk to the guest and whatever they do today, there was something earlier in their career that kind of said, you know what, they are going to do this for their career. Tell us about where you grew up, uh, family, and whether or not there's that something that said you were going to be in digital retail. Yeah, so uh, so I grew up in Newark, Delaware, which is the home of University of Delaware, and I'm also an alumnus of alumni of uh, University of Delaware as well. So, and I did have an early inkling, not so much of digital, but of retail. So when I finished school, so I you know I had some jobs in high school and college in retail. I was seasonal help at the limited way back when uh, during holiday season at my local mall. And then I worked at the mall, the restaurant at the mall. And then uh, after I graduated, my mom actually helped me to get a job at a retail store that she used to shop at. And 
she was friendly with the manager there and gave him my resume. And that was my first foray into retail as a store manager. And I did that for a couple of years. I was fortunate to run a mall-based store, a street front location, and uh, a strip mall location because I had covered like a couple of mat leaves um, at the time. So I didn't necessarily love it. Um, I learned a lot and I knew sort of what retail was, but I didn't know until that was my role and what it was like managing people and managing customers and really building a business. But I had no idea it was going to play such an important role in my life. So things seem to have a way of circling back on you. <laughs> they certainly uh, do. You know, one of the things I, I find so interesting, you know, and, and most folks that I talk to, you, know, you really are involved in a lot of different things. And, you know, one of the challenges, you know, that we all have is prioritization. So how do you balance all the things that you want to do, the the adjunct professor, your day job, family life, um, the mentoring and the advisory work that you do? I don't really, I think about prioritization as being sort of fluid, like each sort of chunk of time, whether it's a week or a month, something may take a different level of prioritization, right? And so, you know, always, you know, my family is my first priority, but after that, like if that's a fixed sort of priority and I have to build things around that, it's really about what is either the most important thing to me or what's the most urgent. But I wouldn't say I don't have it down to a science. Um, I have many plates spinning all the time, just like a lot of other people do. Um, and it's really just about what what is the most important thing at that moment in time. I think it's a work in progress for, for me, for sure, but for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I I talk to you know folks on the show and and we talk about prioritization and you know everybody has a different uh, way of of doing things but you know certainly the point of this is you know you can do a lot of different things if you're efficient with your time um, you can give back uh, you can continue to learn and and clearly that's what you've been doing so just kind of going um, you you mentioned Delaware I know that you got your start or seemingly your start in the banking um, business, MBNA. I was trying to put together the the ties of that area of the the country when I worked in the catalog business very early in my career. We did a an affinity card. Uh, this mm -hmm. was the late '80s. We did an affinity card, and MBNA uh, was the bank uh, that did that work. So, how did you get there, and and what were you doing there? So after I left my stint in retail as a manager, I went to MBNA and I was there in credit card marketing, running affinity card programs, just like the one you mentioned. Um, and I was there for a couple of years and I had lived in Delaware my whole life and was really, you know, this was maybe my late 20s and was really ready for a change. I had gotten a call from a recruiter for a company in Boston I had never heard of. At the time, it was called DM Management. And it became uh, what became J. Jill. And I was asked to run the private label credit card program because they the pe the leaders there knew what MBNA was because of the affinity card programs that they had run so successfully. So MBNA later became uh, part of Bank of America. But I was actually hired at J. Jill to run the private label credit card program. And then e-commerce became my project. <laughs> Which now I would say now it's a lifestyle, but at the time it was like, oh, you're going to go do this project. So, yeah. So you talk about uh, J. Jill. Um, you know, I was in the catalog business, as I mentioned. You know about the uh, MBA affinity card, DM management, um, the late John Hayes. Uh, did you work with John? I did for a long time. 
Yeah. And, you know, that business, um, you know, he and, and I guess George Berman, was it? Yeah. They repositioned that business um, and really made a, a great success out of uh, J. Jill. And I always said the business that I was part of was called Tweeds. And mm -hmm. it was this catalog business that was kind of an offshoot of J. Crew in the late 80s. Um, it was similar customer demographic. Crew was preppy. We were more bohemian. It was, you know, oversized product. It was unisex. And, you know, like many companies that are private equity and in those days, venture capital, we kind of moved away from our knitting and didn't get as successful as we had hoped. And Jay Jill came in in that repositioning and essentially did what Tweeds was doing, but much better than we ever did. Um, so interesting how uh, our, our paths were kind of uh, touching there. So you talk about e-commerce, it was kind of your project. This is late, late 90s or yeah. so. So what was what did you guys think e-commerce was going to be for you? You know, so um, George was a little before my time, but Gordon Cook was our CEO and he was, um, he had worked for many, many years at Bloomingdale's and he and John Hayes kind of came together from New York to uh, suburbs of Boston to run the business there. And um, really at the time when I started, we still had two catalog, two different catalog titles. Nicole Summers was the other? Yes. <laughs> wow. Wow. I haven't, I haven't thought of Nicole Summers for 25 years until you yes. just- yeah. You're, yes, I know. You're making me feel old and young at the same time. Martha Stewart was on the cover of Newsweek talking about her website. And, you know, they were, the leadership team was sort of like, we're going to have an e-commerce website and it's going to be ready by holiday. <laughs> and they were like, okay, give it, like, who can work on this? You know, let's give it to someone who like is younger and can maybe figure it out. Like, we know we need to do this, but it's probably not that important. And so it became my project. But, um, you know, it soon became a really supremely critical part of the business. Being a big catalog company, it was initially easy to convert people into buying online, much more easy than we expected. And then, um, so I joined there in 1998, and then we launched the dot-com business in 1999 at the same, the same month that we opened our first two stores. And we had made the decision to shut down Nicole Sommers, the other catalog business, and really put all of our energy behind making J. Jill an omni-channel brand. And that was way before people talked about omni-channel. I mean, that was like the very beginning of that. So, so it was really an incredible experience. At that time, I was working for Hanover Direct and the company store catalog, and we were just starting to think about you know what online was. And and then I uh, in 2000 moved to to Brooks Brothers, and that's really where I got my first opportunity uh, in digital. So you know very similar yeah. time frame to you. And then you know you kind of come back to New York or come to New York as a VP of e-commerce at New York and Company. So what kind of business was that? And how did the J. Jill work that you were doing prepare you for that role? Yeah. So I left J. Jill. I was there for eight years and I left as we were selling the business to Talbots. So at that point we had about, you know, $80 million digital business and about 250 stores. So it was really an incredible opportunity. And every couple of years, it was like being at a different company. And I learned so much, especially from the unbelievable direct marketers that we had there. And also because like, to your point about Hanover and Tweeds and all that, like all of those businesses started out being excellent at e-commerce because 
we knew how to fulfill, we knew how to answer the phone, we knew how to take care of customers remotely. Our customer already understood all of that. So it was sort of an easy transition. Um, and then I went to New York and company. So I moved to New York City. It was the inverse problem, right? So billion dollar company publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange, 600 stores and no e-commerce. And, you know, the company, the leadership team was a little skeptical. This customer would shop online, the product would resonate. Um, it was very much a fast fashion business before that was, you know, before the H&Ms and the Forever 21s of the world was really spun out of limited business. And there was a lot of the same sort of rigor and approach to the merchandising and the product development and marketing of the business. And so there was a lot of skepticism about digital being something that would be important. And it turned out to be very important. And there, what we really focused on was not only growing the digital business because they had a massive email list long before I got there and they knew that they could use email to drive stores was really about creating the omnichannel fulfillment piece because 600, you know, you would have like a pair of pants and it would have a certain rise, a certain leg opening, a color size, and across 600 stores, it would be almost impossible to be in stock. And so one of the things we started to work on right away was fulfillment for retail demand out of our e-commerce warehouse and business. And that became a very important lever to um, get the store teams motivated about digital because they were worried that it was going to hurt their business. It's interesting how many businesses that um, were not shipping from stores. They had stores in, in a digital business, weren't shipping from stores and really wanted to. And once they did start shipping from stores, they realized how hard it was to ship from stores. Oh, yeah. And we we really did not do that as much as we shipped from our warehouse. You know, we called it save the sale. Save the sale. <laughs> and so like, especially we focused on a few key items and we just really heavied up the inventory in our e-commerce warehouse to fulfill the demand that we just couldn't be in stock on in the stores. And it made a huge difference uh, to driving sales in those stores. Eventually they did do in-store fulfillment. That is very hard. That's complicated. <laughs> That's for sure. Having been in a number of companies that uh, are doing it, um, it, it's definitely challenging. Uh, speaking of, of New York and company, that was a, a fairly promotional business. Um, you've been in retail for a long time. Talk a little bit about, you know, this conundrum, you know, you need to move out sales, you need to hit your numbers. In many instances, part of the way to do that is to be promotional. But we all know that once you become promotional, it's super difficult to break away from that. How have you dealt with that throughout your career? That's the blessing and the curse of retail, right? You learned that these things start to work and then it becomes a little too much of the playbook a lot of times. And we are looking at those things in, even at Nest now. I mean, I, I think it's just part of our industry challenge um, because what does motivate a customer to make that purchase? Um, and I think unless you're a true luxury brand, this is something you have to figure out how to make work in your specific business. So lately, we've really had a lot more focus on margin drivers, on average order value, on really, really trying to do the promotions that we do run more as profitably as we can. So we haven't talked about Nest yet, but Nest is very widely distributed. And so when we run promotions on our website, it sometimes creates challenges in other channels that we run. So it's always this balance of driving sales, like you said, and driving profitability and not really getting customers too attached to promotions. 
Thriving brands today have one thing in common. They make it a priority to understand their customers. Imparity uses AI to unify customer data and help businesses know exactly who their customers are and what they care about most. Find new customers, grow loyalty, get better return on ad spend, and manage privacy compliance. An accurate, unified customer data foundation connected with the teams and tools that need it makes everything you do with customer data work better. Build your strategy on Amparity, the platform for customer data. Learn more at Amparity.com. So you mentioned Nest, and we'll go back and, and cover some other topics. But since you did mention it, um, what is the Nest business for those that don't know it? And to the point you just made about the different channels, what are those channels that you sell in? So Nest New York, is a, we're a fragrance company. And so we primarily uh, produce home fragrance, but we also sell quite a bit of fine fragrance. So eau de parfums and perfume oils, and also what we call fragrance technology, which is like... We have a little um, app-based device that's a diffuser. We have a plug-in wall diffuser, a misting diffuser, et cetera. So we're private equity owned and we sell in places like department stores, uh, specialty stores like Sephora and Ulta, 2,000 boutiques around the country, Amazon, and also internationally. So we're, we're very widely distributed. And does that present a challenge for, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've got the Nest umbrella hat on as the chief digital officer, um, but mm -hmm. I would also imagine that the sales that come through your own uh, e-commerce um, site are part and parcel to the role that you play. So is it a challenge that you are selling in so many different outlets and also responsible for the e-commerce business? It is, but it's part of the fun, really. I mean, there are a lot of puts and takes, right? So when one channel is maybe not doing as well, we may have the opportunity to offset that in another channel. And, you know, my entire career has really been in omni-channel retail, and that's run the gamut of like store catalog, web businesses, companies with, you know, uh, wholesale, Amazon, international, et cetera. And to me, even though I've always been the PNL owner of the digital business, where the magic really happens is when you can bring the brand together across all channels. So like merchandising, marketing, technology, all working together to deliver a brand experience that wins. And that's when you can really see a brand shine. And, you know, at the end of the day, being, a, you know, on the leadership team, you really have to say, we don't care what channel she comes in through as long as she buys from us. Right. And so once you, once you start to adopt that mindset, things start to fall into place. Yeah, that's exactly uh, the language I liked to use when I was at Steve Madden. You know, let the customer have a consistent experience across all the channels. You know, it doesn't really matter whether they buy in our stores, if they buy, you know, at a department store or any of the other places we sold or if they bought on our site. So uh, I think that makes uh, total sense. I asked, have asked this question, you know, a lot. So, you, you know, you're overseeing digital. I like mm -hmm. to call it the shiny object syndrome. You know, right. I would imagine that you are being asked to talk to all kinds of vendors with all kinds of products uh, every day. How do you figure out at what the right time is to pursue something new versus just saying thanks, but no thanks? I think that's a great question. And I think you have to have, I think it's like not even 80-20, but like 90-10 of like 90% really running what's most important to your business and having that maybe 10% or so flexibility and your, your bandwidth and your budget to try some new things. But I think you have to clearly outline 
what you're going after, maybe at the beginning of the year or the budget cycle to say, we want to take X amount of money and resources and we want to try something new and then kind of use that to like delve into it, look at potential technology solutions, look at vendors, do the work on seeing what your competition is doing and what's what really makes sense, but always through the lens of what works for this customer and this brand. Because um, like you said, there's a lot of shiny objects out there. Most brands I've worked in, you don't necessarily need to be on the leading edge of what's happening. You need to be not the first mover, but you need to be in the pack when the timing is right. And so it's really keeping an eye on what's happening and when it's when it's right for you. So when somebody comes calling and it's you know something that's interesting to you, but perhaps wasn't on your radar, is there something that you know the listeners might take away from a comment that you could make here that says, all right, I wasn't planning to do it, but something they said got me interested. What might that something be? You know, I really look for partnership with the vendors that we do work with. I like it when we can go deeper with the vendors that we have. I think it's better from a bandwidth and a loyalty perspective and a top of mind, you know, ability to really be a part, to really get the mind share from the vendor. Um, so I like to pilot new ideas with existing vendors. That's my, my best case scenario where we're not like breaking everything in at once, but we're maybe like testing an add-on product from a core, a core vendor. And we've actually done that this year a little bit, which has been, um, it's been worthwhile because I don't know how many times you work with Shopify, but in the Shopify ecosystem, you know, there's like millions of apps and you could have all this, you know, all these different apps and all this noise happening in your environment. And what I've really found is that fewer is better. So, yeah, um, I, I've actually, you know, had some experiences with Shopify and, you know, despite you know, the technologist saying that this doesn't happen. My experience has been that, you know, as you start to add in the apps, there is contention that happens. Their sites slow down. Shopify tends to be, in my experience, is a slower platform in many respects anyway. So when you get more complicated, it just makes it, you know, more difficult. And and I think we would all say that, well, I can't speak for everybody, but certainly site speed matters uh, from a conversion point of view. I like your your thought here about you know going deeper on uh, things that you already own. So many brands are so overtooled; um, yeah. they don't have a good a good they don't have a good balance between the tools that they have and the staff that they have, and you know they're not even using as much capability as what they're paying for. So uh, I like that idea of going deeper. Let's talk a little bit. You know, you were at Alex, and is it Ani or Annie? Yeah. Ani, um, yeah. Ani. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Alex and Ani, you started as an uh, in an interim role there, and then you know came on as an employee. So just quickly talk about that business, and you've had a couple of situations where you started in an interim role and then moved into full time. I think there's a lot of that that happens. I've experienced that. Um, that's worked well for you. Yeah. Um, yes, I've done it a couple times in my career, and. Um, it is a great way to really understand a company, its culture, you know, the team, the challenges um, before you make a commitment and vice versa, right? For the company to really understand you and what you bring to the table and to see how it fits in with what they're looking for. So I have done a number of interim leadership stints. Um, usually what happens is someone loses their head of X, head of marketing, head of e-commerce, head of digital, and 
uh, that role is critical and you've got to get the right person in that role. And you, you know, if the company is smart, they want to commit the right amount of time to getting that person in the role, not the fastest, but the right person in the role. And so a lot of times people will be hired on an interim basis to keep things moving while the while a full-time person is hired. So interim leadership projects can be really fun because you're really looking at the strategy, the team and talent, the budget, the tech stack, the sales plan, to and to really kind of come up with a plan to say, this is what I think you should do with this business. And then, you know, I've been in those roles anywhere from six to 18 months leading a business and sometimes even hiring the um, replacement person and transit and doing that transition. So it's really an interesting way to sort of work on things. And you're a little bit less bogged down in the day-to-day, which is also very nice. <laughs> yeah, I would couldn't agree more. I've, I've been lucky enough to have a few of those roles uh, myself and have enjoyed actually in one for the most part right now. So that's great. You've also, you know, much like me, um, have done uh, quite a bit of consulting uh, on your own, your own consultancy. How do you find clients? So people always ask me this. I generally, I know a lot of people. I've been in this industry for a really long time. I find in general networking is the best way to find new opportunities, new vendors, meet new people that have expertise that I'm looking for and clients from a consulting perspective. That's the number one way to do it. I'm not like a classically trained sales or biz dev kind of person. And so the times I've been in consulting, it's always trying to figure out the balance between how much time do you spend trying to get clients and how much time do you work with clients? So I would say networking and it, and I would add to that like in-person networking. Like I love going to events and meeting people and talking to people and hearing about the problems people are having and thinking about their solutions. Element is an award-winning advertising agency optimizing e-commerce campaigns around profit. In fact, they've helped 13 of their customers get acquired, with one selling for nearly $800 million and one that IPO'd recently. Plus, they were ranked as the 12th fastest growing agency in the world by Adweek. If you're an e-commerce business that needs help scaling your ads profitably, check them out at element.com, spelled E-L-U-M-Y-N-T dot com. Do you find that there's a, a, a common thread um, through you know folks that you talk to about the challenges, the problems that they're facing? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, people have all these same struggles with omnichannel, with being over, you know, too much tech, you know, team. Like it's hard to really retain really good talent. So how do you do that? I mean, I think this whole past few years has been like a total roller coaster. And so which side of the roller coaster are you on at this moment in time? So I think there's been a whole bunch of, you know, level setting and you really see brands that have survived and the ones that haven't. So you talk about roller coaster, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, there are businesses and be interested in, in your experiences. There are businesses that were you know, kind of plodding along, maybe low single digit growth, maybe a little uh, bit of a decline pre-COVID. And then depending upon the vertical, you know, that they were in after the initial decline, you know, the first couple of months of of COVID, when we realized what we were in, there are a mm-hmm. lot of verticals that, you know, performed really well in the mm-hmm. back half of 20, 21, 22. And so many of them that I've experienced felt that that was their new norm. You know, their COVID peaks 
were their new norm. And they planned yeah. for it from a headcount perspective. They planned for it from an inventory perspective um, and perhaps other forms of investment. What have you seen in the businesses that you've interacted with over this time uh, that were dealing with similar kinds of thinking? For sure. I think some categories, some verticals did very well during the pandemic and we're racing to keep a pace, right? Like we're just really racing to keep up or dramatic shift in the channel mix, right? So like I've mentioned, Nest is very widely distributed, but we had whole channels that were basically shut down, right? So it was a dramatic shift towards digital that if you were lucky or if you were really like forward thinking, you had all that in place already. If you didn't, then you weren't getting that kind of growth. But I think, I mean, companies all across the board staffed up for that. Shopify, big tech, like all, I mean, it wasn't just retail. I think a lot of people were really reacting to what was happening, not knowing what, you know, how things, in my opinion, things kind of snapped back a lot faster than people thought with return to work, return to store, et cetera. So. You mentioned return to work. Uh, your staff remote or in office? Um, we have an office. We in Midtown in New York City. And we I go in the office usually a couple of days a week because I like to have a break between being at home and being in the office. Um, as a leadership team, we come in and meet um, very regularly. And then we also have lot, quite a lot of like vendor meetings, client customer meetings in our office. That being said, we don't yet have an official return to work policy. If and when we do, it will be hybrid. I think most companies are really gravitating towards hybrid because they think it's a good balance. It's also good for employees, but it's good for companies. Um, be Running a digital team, I think it's a little bit less critical that the team is there in person and because we can, we can do our work remotely. I like to see people, and even with my team, we plan meetings to be together, but more like every other week or once a month. So maybe I'm old school, but I, I like having in-person interaction. I think it's important. Yeah, I, I do also, um, although I, I do <laughs> I do like coming down in the morning, having my coffee and not having <laughs> to get in the car and or train and go anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. When I talk to you know brands, you know one of the biggest challenges that they've got um, is rising cost of of marketing and new customer acquisition and kind of keeping the proverbial top of the funnel full. How are you thinking about that at Nest? So I guess I would say first, like in my career, I've never really I've never worked at a place where you just got to acquire customers and lose money. <laughs> so I had that rigor instilled in me from a very early point in my career that, you know, we need to be first order profitable and here's why, and here's how we approach that. So good or bad, I think in some ways it paces the growth a little bit differently than when you're aggressively acquiring customers. I would say for Nest, we also, you know, weren't heavily investing when Facebook was really cheap, right? So a lot of direct-to-consumer businesses were built because customer acquisition was so cheap, they could make one product, like one shoe, and think they were going to have this massive business, not really understanding that you have to get a second order out of those customers. <laughs> so, you know, the other thing about being omnichannel is we're consumers, right? So we buy in lots of places. So, you know, we spend money to drive customers to our website, they make a purchase, they may make another purchase on Amazon or in Bloomingdale's or 
their boutique, you know, on their main street in their, in their town. So like, it's not so linear. And, you know, if you think about your purchasing behavior, you're not always buying every single purchase from a brand in the same channel. Maybe there are some things that are very easy to buy over and over, but we all use a combination. And so even when you're thinking about customer acquisition, you've got to think about brand awareness, the bigger picture, the, the KPIs, all the like performance KPIs are critically important for one thing, just to get funding, but, but also, you know, we know that the money we invest to drive our digital business does drive the rest of our business too. As you think about, um, I'm sure you're knee deep in, in budgeting for next year, you know, we've had an economy that's kind of whipsawed back and forth, you know, high unemployment, uh, relatively high unemployment, certainly high inflation, uh, much higher interest rates, and that's taking dollars out of uh, the consumer's pocket. So how are you thinking about next year? You know, we're planning growth. We're planning it, I think, relatively reasonably. It's not so conservative, but it's not unachievable. So I would say it's healthily, it's a healthy, aggressive growth goal. Um, and we're really looking at it channel by channel to see where the real opportunities are. Part of it for us is continued expansion into new new channels, whether it's like new doors at a specialty that we already work with, or it's new product assortment that's available um, by channel. And so we're thinking about it a number of different ways. We think there's still a lot of white space for us in this market and, you know, international is entirely incremental. And there's a lot of focus on really expanding the footprint um, beyond the U.S. And for those folks that are listening that don't know the Nest product lines, uh, the product is great. Um, they have lots of different options um, as you're thinking about holiday gift giving. Uh, you should uh, think about Nest. So there's a commercial for you, uh, <laughs> Thanks. Andrea. So as we uh, we wrap up, three things that maybe you know are keeping you awake at night about your business. Uh, you know, the one thing I say I don't worry about as much anymore is tech. Is you know being on Shopify take some of that pressure off of like when I think about holidays in the past and is, was our site going to stay up and how are we going to gate our emails to make sure like, it's really nice not to have that as a worry. What I worry about is um, to your point, consumer sentiment and what, how consumers are really thinking and where they're spending. Uh, that's, that's critically important um, market share and competition. So, you know, we're pretty, you know, we're affordable luxury. We're aspirational luxury for a lot of people. We have competitors much higher than us and we have a big business, you know, lots of businesses lower than us. And so it's always this, you know, how do we get people to trade up to us is really the more critical piece, but also how do we maintain and grow market share? I would say is another one. And team and talent. I always want to really feel like we're attracting and motivating and keeping, you know, the best people that we can get and keeping them engaged. Yeah, that's a whole other topic we can get into mm -hmm. the uh, people earlier stage in their career and wanting to uh, have your job after two years. Oh, yeah, that's always uh, interesting, but good stuff. I really appreciate uh, all your insights. So we do this uh, two minute drill at the end of the show, uh, seven questions, one word answer. Nobody ever sticks to one word, but let's see if you can <laughs> do it. Um, you ready? I'm ready. Okay. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? 
Um, I like this. All right. I'm already not on one word, but I like this um, fashion brand I've been following recently called L'Agence, L-A-G-E-N-C-E. And like I said, I've been in fashion a really long time, so it's hard to get excited about fashion. But I think what they're doing is very cool in the contemporary space. Okay. I will check it out. Favorite app on your phone? I would say most used app is probably Instagram. Favorite app is maybe uh, New York Times cooking app or Robinhood. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Um, Saks. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were? Um, I would love to play a musical instrument. Join the club. Charitable <laughs> organization that you're passionate about? Uh, so I am currently on the associate council at Delivering Good, which is an organization that brings new product to people in need. So there's lots and lots of excess product in this industry, apparel, shoes, backpacks, personal care items, and there's lots of people in need. And so we do really two things, disaster relief. So when there's a hurricane or an earthquake, um, as well as, you know, our day-to-day -day, uh, support of places like homeless shelters and uh, the like. So, um, and I, what I love about it is that it really takes, it solves two problems. Brands and retailers that just have way too much inventory that they need to get rid of and people who need it. So um, it's been a lot of fun. That's great. If you had one superpower, what would it be? I think I would like to see into the future. Other than family, what's your most prized possession? You know, it's a little bit of a toss up, but um, when my husband and I got married, um, his mom, my mother-in-law, Cheryl, gave us this incredible sculpture this sculpture of a woman and because we like had he, my husband had always loved it and I really liked it and um, it was just a really special meaningful gift so maybe that's it very nice where can people reach out to you on social media should they be interested um the best place is LinkedIn okay great well look uh thank you very much for the time Andrea nice to see you uh congratulations on all your success and all the work and um, uh, I hope that you and the business have a great holiday season. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. See you soon. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Andrea Moore for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, we covered this one often in our shows, networking and in-person interactions. You heard Andrea speak about how important it is to build a network. It could be to help answer questions for your job. It could be because you're looking for a new job, and it could be because you're a salesperson. But building and maintaining a network is crucial, and you cannot do this from behind your screen. You need to get out there and physically interact with people. Number two, let the customer shop where they want to. If you're part of a multi-channel brand like Nest, it should not matter whether the customer buys from you at your site, another retailer site, or from a physical store. Your story and experience need to be the same regardless of the channel. And number three, and this is also another repeat thought, the shiny object syndrome. Andrea offered a great way to think about this. Use the tools that you already have better than you're using them today. You made a decision to work with a partner, push them hard to make sure that you're getting all out of the solution that you can. That said, do devote some time, even if only a small portion, to listen to new vendors about new feature and function that might be available. It'll keep you fresh and up to date on what's going on in your respective industry. 
Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Thank <laughs> you.